Lord. Please, um, please turn to uh, Romans chapter five. We're gonna we're gonna tie Romans five and six together today. We're gonna be speaking about reigning grace and sin. Reigning grace and sin. Kind of just using those those thoughts to to tie five and six together for us here. Have you ever done uh, a particularly bad sin or set of sins against a friend in some way? When you've uh, sinned against someone that you love and you've come to appreciate, you should really consider the words that you would bring to this person in in that circumstance. What what are you going to say? How are you going to come and speak to them? What kind of confession are you going to make to them? How are you going to acknowledge the wrong you've done against this person? How are you going to admit your foolishness, your pride, your ignorance? I, I was uh, listening to an audio book a couple weeks ago, and chapter 6 of Holy War gives one of the best... Uh, one of the, one of the best non-biblical examples of of repentance from sin of confession of sin that I've ever heard as I was uh, kind of listening to this and pondering over um, what I was hearing there admitting your sin and foolishness admitting your ignorance ignorance making no qualifications do you sometimes make uh, apologies for your sin, confessions of your sin, that maybe to your spouse or to someone close to you, and you qualify it? I'm sorry that I did this to you, but I just kind of, and, and we kind of, we, we won't make a full confession. We, we kind of, we, we can't bring ourselves to just completely put up the white flag and say, you know what, I, I sinned. I'm sorry. When you've, when you do this, when, when you bring these words to your friend, if, if you have brought a full confession and that person doesn't really, really want to hear it, they don't want to hear it, they, they won't hear it, they won't receive it, you feel a little sad. You feel, I mean, in, in, in some ways you might even feel a little bit indignant. Which means, hey, come on, man! I'm I'm actually really being humble right now. I'm I'm giving a real apology, and you don't even want to hear it. You should hear me because I'm being so noble and giving such a great confession of my sin. But sometimes you will you will have sinned in such a way, and or the person you've sinned against is in such a a state they're not going to hear it. They're not. And if they won't respond, if they don't re- reply in a way that you wanted, and instead they, they despise you more, you move on. And, and you acknowledge, I'm reaping what I've sown. In other words, I, I'm the one who harmed. I'm the one who hurt. 
and you kind of have to own that you're reaping what you've sown if, if this kind of thing has ever happened to you. You cannot make somebody forgive you, can you? You can't. You want to. You even want to say, hey, you're a Christian. You have to forgive me. But you can't. You, you just can't make someone forgive you, can you? A, a Christian is actually obligated to forgive. The, the scripture teaches us that. The Spirit of God says, if you have been forgiven your sins in Christ, you will forgive this, this sin that this person has sinned against you. The scripture actually teaches that. But you cannot make somebody forgive you, let alone like you. And sometimes, I, I, I believe some of you have gone through a, a, a situation like this. It just happens. It's part of our human condition to have sinned gravely against somebody and, and they don't want to forgive you. And you have got to move on. You, you leave that thing in God's hands. However, if this person that you, you've worked up the nerve and you are humbling yourself and you bring your confession and your apology to them, and they look you in the eye and you can tell they're weighing you, man. They're, they're measuring you or they're like, is he for real? Is this legit? Or is this, this person's apology for me, really? I mean, do they, do they love me? Are they really seeking a right relationship again? And, and as they're eyeing you and as they're evaluating their words and, and you're done with their talk, maybe, maybe they reach out their hand and then they give a good handshake and they say, I forgive you and I, and I love you. Or they give you a hug and they say, yeah, I really do forgive you. I love you. What do you feel like when that happens? Joy. Joy. Tremendous joy. And and sometimes maybe even a little bit unexpected joy. You're a little bit afraid going into that that maybe they won't. And 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 when you're surprised by their love, it really is pretty special. It's pretty sweet when when they might uh, reply like that. So your response is joy, maybe intense relief, maybe you have a sense of, oh, wow, Lord, thank you. Man, that was just wonderfully unexpected, Lord, thank you. That's part of our, our reply. And, and the next part of our reply that you may not have thought through, and, and this kind of is our subject matter of this passage between Romans 5 and 6 today, part of it is is really must be a decision regarding your rule from how, how are you going to go? How are you going to act and live from that point forward in regard to that relationship? What's it going to be like between you and this person from that point forward? If it was a really rude word or if it was a really despicable act that got you in that situation in the first place, are you going to do that thing again? Are you going to say it again? Are you going to keep acting like that? And, and frankly, there are a lot of relationships in this world where that very thing does just keep happening. We, we now call it in the psychological world abuse. Right? So a guy will 
come to the woman he's been abusing with his mouth or with his hands. And, and he says, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. I love you. You know I love you. And she says, oh, okay, honey, I forgive you. And then he does the same thing again the next week or the next month. And, and really it's the foolishness and, and the fearfulness and the weakness of, of that person who will go back into that abusive thing over and over again. And it is the cruelty and it is the, the meanness and, and the debased sinfulness of that person that will continue to abuse over and over again. And both of these people are in a terrible circumstance. But when a person has received a sincere apology, when they've, when they've offered love in return, when you have brought your confession of them, how are you going to go forward? That's that's what Romans 6 is about. Where do you go from here when, when you have been received? Romans 6 is meant to prevent you from reading God's grace incorrectly. Romans 6 is so that you will not go forward from your 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 day of understanding, forgiveness, and salvation. Don't go from there forward misunderstanding the grace of God. That's what Romans 6 is meant to teach us. His grace, God's grace and God's salvation should move you out of the rule and the reign of sin. Those words of rule and reign we've touched on, we've read about this reign here in Romans 5. There's a reign in Adam, and then there is a reign in Christ. Faith in Christ is also a belief in the evil and the destruction of sin. Believing the Lord Jesus comes with this understanding of of sin. And as God offers generous love, to forgiven sinners, how ought we to behave and think in our ongoing life from the point where we meet this forgiveness and this offer of life in the Lord Jesus Christ? How should we go forward? So look at with me, Romans 5.18. Read this already last week. Therefore, as through one man's offense... Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, there it is, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So there's the answer to the question. This is this is how the Christian responds to the grace of God. Let's let's get into this a little bit and and look at some of the beauty of what's revealed to us. Romans 5 shows how it is that 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 the sinner is justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace and grace are granted to them by justification. They've been justified. They're given these privileges in Christ. And when the gospel is preached, when you heard the gospel preached, in a way, I think you might understand what I mean now, you have been invited to leave the reign of Adam's sin. Adam's sin is is the sin of the whole world. All men are under the reign of Adam's sin, which means what? What is the final result of that reign? Death. Men will die if they stay in the reign of Adam's sin. And so the gospel is an offer to leave this reign. In verses 20 and 21, what we just read there in 5, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death. Sin reigns. What's the word reign mean? It's in charge. It's it's the king. It rules. Sin rules in death. That's an interesting phrase. Even so, grace might reign. Sin reigns on the one hand. Grace reigns on the other hand. Grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Sin reigns in Adam. Now, ideas are what reign in the kingdom of men. Where where men live, where we do our thing in this world, ideas are what reigns, what rules. Not all men live under the same rules. Not all men follow the same ideas. Some ideas of men are good and many are bad. But when sin reigns, think about this. When sin reigns, the rules of sin, the principles of sin, do all the dictating. They they do all the creating of culture. They do all the making of life. When sin reigns, from, from, from the microcosmic husband, wife, there is there's sin between, and then the children, and then their community, and, and, and then their whole town, and their whole state. When sin reigns in a culture, think just for a moment, Just I'm not going to spell a bunch of it out, but think of how complicated and chaotic life is when every single man, woman, and child has got sin churning around in our heads and our hearts and our mouths and the things we do and the things we say and you get into that a few generations and think about what sin is doing to your town, to your world. And ultimately, what does that reign do? What is what is that king sin leading them all to? 
What's it leading us to? Death. And when you think about it, the, the reign of sin is really the saddest and the cruelest thing that could be imagined. Think of all the ways sin corrupts your own life and then you complicate it by adding a spouse and, and children and, and a community and, and business dealings and, and your job. Think of how complicated and horrible sin becomes. It is a reign it is a reign of designed destruction, planned unhappiness. And when you think about what the devil is about, when he is planning your sins, when he's luring you into this sin or that sin, what is it for? It promises joy. It promises peace. It promises benefit. And what do you get? You might get momentary pleasure. You might get momentary benefit. But ultimately, when you look back on a life of sin, when you look back on generations of how it ruins lives and towns and peoples and nations, it's, it's just awful. It is so sad. Planned unhappiness, planned disorder, and finally death. Death comes under sin's reign. It only ends... In death. And sin only, only, only produces misery. There's another murder on Thursday or Friday in Fort Bragg. A friend of mine just told me about it involved drugs and involved upset love life of some kind. A lot of murders happen in Mendocino County, don't they? Disappointments in love, loss of money, unmet hopes. Sin is a miserable, sad ruler. The righteous deed of Christ brings a new reign. The reign of sin, which came through Adam's sin. The one was the door through whom sin came and, and death spread to all men. Christ comes with the one righteous deed, the one righteous act by Christ. Opens the door for another reign and it's the reign of God's grace. The reign of God's grace substitutes the Messiah's righteousness and holy for yours. It's important for you to understand how this new reign works. His holiness becomes yours by grace. There's a new reign. It isn't your sinlessness as in you stop working sin and speaking sin and doing sin, although over time you will be less and less subject to your sinfulness as you walk with the Lord. But this new reign is a reign of grace. And so in your sin, in your lie, in your self-pity, in your greed, Lord, forgive me. God's grace replaces. God's grace is a replacement. Your unrighteousness is made righteous by God's grace in Christ. 
There is a new reign. And therefore, when you sin this afternoon, when you sin now, and as you go into the future, there is a new reign in Christ where you wear the righteousness of Christ to the end. And are you going to die? Not the way the unforgiven are going to die. Because there's a new reign that does not end in death. It ends in eternal life. He did the righteousness. He grants His righteousness to those who believe savingly. He gives His righteousness as a gift of grace. It is a new reign. It's a different reign. Christ's obedience becomes your obedience by faith. He is the, the, the king, if you will, of the new reign. Men live in the reign of guilt and death because of Adam or grace, righteousness, and eternal life because of Christ. Men live in one of these reigns. There's only one place for any man to live. You live in the reign of sin or you live in the reign of grace and righteousness in Christ. And as it seems bitterly unfair to inherit something that means eternal death, I mean, doesn't that just seem like the worst possible thing there is in the universe? To inherit Adam's sin means to inherit eternal death. What a bitter, awful, sad horrible reality that that is. Now, get as opposite of that as you can possibly imagine when you start thinking about what has been offered to you in Christ. As bitter and how horrible death in Adam is, it is glorious and joyful and wonderful in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is granted by your faith in the one who does live forever. Your hope is in the righteous one. Your hope is in his eternal life. It is Christ's righteous work, true, complete, and full righteousness. Christ satisfies God's justice. Christ's gift of life is given to believing sinners who have left the reign of Adam's sin. Romans 3.21, looked at it many times, flip over there to Romans 3.21, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Righteousness is the thing you need. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, God's very righteousness, His personal righteousness, God's righteousness, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. There's no difference. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Salvation is the impossibly ultimately rich gift of God by His grace through your faith in Christ. So, people are led to wonder. You think about this for a second. Salvation is an impossible thing for a man to attain by his 
own doing. In other words, you cannot find the righteousness you need without Christ. It is impossible for you to have it. But when it is impossible for you to not sin. In other words, there isn't a man who can't not sin. You will sin. You do sin. You can't not. You can't stop. And God offers you forgiveness and eternal life and the righteousness of Christ anyways. Isn't it easy for you to begin to assume? Isn't it even right for you to realize and think, well, then sin just doesn't even matter. Sin isn't a thing. I mean, I'm a sin factory. I'm a sin machine. I always have been. And He's going to forgive me. He's going to give me the righteousness of Christ. It's all purely, totally, 100% the work and the righteousness of Christ and resulting in my gift of eternal life. And and the the sinner hearing this is happy and and he receives this. And therefore he knows, well... Sin just doesn't even matter anymore. It's all been taken care of by Christ. Even the sins I will sin tomorrow. Christ's perfection. All of His righteousness. All of His goodness. It's become yours by faith in Christ. And so men do think, hmm, it just doesn't even matter. I have been made purely righteous in Christ. And honestly, that is a right understanding of the gospel. You have done nothing to warrant your righteousness. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot find it. It has been granted to you by faith in Christ. And so that's why this question exists in Romans 6.1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace might abound? That is the logical conclusion to the right understanding of the gospel. If you get the gospel, the grace of God is so rich and so free, you cannot help but think, well, I'll just go on sinning like I'm sinning and doing what I'm doing because it has nothing to do with me anyways. Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? Isn't that what he just said in the closing lines of chapter 5? Look what it says in verse 20. The law entered that the offense might abound. Men had Adam sin before there was a law. The law comes in. And then what happens when the law comes in? It, it exposes sin like, I don't know what any of these technologies mean, but there's such thing as a CT scan, Right? It, it looks at something that my eyes can't see. An MRI looks at something that my eyes can't see. And an X-ray looks at something that my eyes can't see. What does the law do? The law comes in and all of a sudden, all the sin that was invisible in you is just jumping off of the, off of the film if they put CT scans and MRIs and X-rays on film. I don't know where they go. All of a sudden... You who thought you were 100% healthy and 100% right, that, that I don't do MRIs have things you can, are, are, are they bright? I've heard of people talking about getting scans for, for cancer, and, and if they've got cancer bad, people will say something like, it lit up the, 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 the screen or the image. In other words, what, what had not been visible was now everywhere. And this person who thought they were fine yesterday discovers a day they've got cancer everywhere and they're only going to live a few more weeks. But 
they, they couldn't see it. This is what the law did when the law comes in. The law comes in and all of a sudden these self-righteous, self-holy, self-confident people realize I have no righteousness. I have no confidence. I have no hope. I'm going to die because the wage of sin is death. That is what the law did when the law comes. But what it says there in verse 20 is when the law came in, what happened? When the law comes in, what happens? The offense abounded. In other words, guilty sinners were more guilty. And then what does it say? But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. The grace of God was richer than the condemnation of the increased knowledge of sin. The sinfulness of men was increasing as the law becomes apparent on men. What what abounded? Grace abounded. That's why this issue in Romans 6.1, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? I mean, the law came and expanded sin and, and grace abounded. It's a logical conclusion. Sin it up. Do it up. Bring on the grace. Five closes saying grace might reign through the righteousness. Grace might reign through righteousness. It's reigning. It's, it's imputing the righteousness of Christ to you. God's grace is imputing perfect righteousness to you. Grace is reigning when you're in Christ. Shall you continue in sin that grace might abound? Doesn't that mean that sin and sins make the grace of God more abundant? Doesn't it glorify the Lord to have His grace magnified? What if your father writes you a check whenever the court requires a speeding fine? Your dad writes you a check, 200 bucks this month, you speed again, 400 bucks next month. You speed again, 600 bucks next month. You speed again, they're going to throw you in jail and take away your car and your dad bails you out and buys you a new car. Or if a friend pays for engine repairs every time your car breaks down, wouldn't that mean that maintenance is no big deal? Wouldn't that mean you just, I mean, who needs to worry about it? Well, change my friend, buy me a new engine when I blow up my car. doesn't really matter. Obviously, these are very, very shallow, humanistic little illustrations, but we would all say that the, the child who presumed upon their father's generosity over and over again was a wretch of a child. We, we would know that's wrong. And if somebody was so kind as to pay for repairs on your car that you are negligent to, to take care of, and now you're costing your friends something, we look at something like that and like, oh man, that's... That is just how you abuse people. That's not how you love people. It's it's the same as the illustration I began with here. When you came to Christ, re- repenting of your sin, when you came to God saying, God, I am a sinner and I'm going to die in my sins unless you forgive me. And how I praise you for for paying the penalty of my sin, Lord. When you did that, when, you, when you've come to Christ, uh, presuming you have come to Him, and, and these have been your words in your heart to Him, shall you continue in sin that grace may abound? Is the question in Romans 6. Grace 
in salvation is the gift of God's righteousness. In other words, you can't be saved without being righteous. Salvation is righteousness. You must have somebody's righteousness because it cannot be yours. You have none. You must receive the gift of Christ's righteousness. The Christ had to pay the penalty of sin. Whose sin did Christ pay the penalty of? Yours. He paid the penalty of your sin. Because the wage of sin is death. Sin must be paid for. Sin has a penalty. Christ paid the penalty of sin. A dear, dear, dear penalty. The wage of sin is death. What does is, what is your righteousness cost? The life of the spotless lamb. And so for you to step through to the other side of your moment of repentance with Christ and say, he doesn't really even care about sin. I mean, you know, he, he's forgiven it. He took it all. I have his righteousness. It doesn't matter what I do because I'm wearing his righteous robes. I've got his righteousness. It, it, it doesn't matter. You see how horrible and how presumptuous and how arrogant, how prideful, how dishonorable that is? Do you see how that just does not ring true with anything you know? That's called antinomianism. When, when, a, when, when someone begins to perceive the gospel and then they decide, you know what, I'm just going from here on out. Sin doesn't matter anymore. Saying sin doesn't matter is saying there's nothing is against the law. That's called antinomianism. Nothing is against the law. I can do whatever I want. God will forgive it anyways. It's okay. It's all grace now. There is no... I'm not a legalist. It's a thing a lot of people say. Do not ever presume upon the patience of the one who has been offended. It's a good rule for us to remember. Don't presume upon the patience of the one who has been offended. Don't presume upon the love of the one who has been offended. That is horribly rude. It, it, it is horribly disrespectful and unrealistic for you to presume upon the love and the grace and the richness of the offended. We don't do that. Romans 2.4 Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? When we act like he doesn't care, when we act like it doesn't matter, we're misreading the cues. We're misreading the signs. If you sin this afternoon and a lightning bolt doesn't kill you, do you interpret that to mean God doesn't care that you sin? Or do you interpret that to mean that His patience is meant to lead you to repentance? God's amazingly patient. He's amazingly kind. And He, he won't kill you this afternoon, usually. 
if you sin in some way this afternoon. He won't normally kill you there in your shoes. But if he did, would he be wrong? If he went like this and flicked your car off the hill and you went down into the creek on the way home and you died, would he be wrong for judging your sin? No. Do not fall, do not submit to being an abuser of the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Don't fall into believing that that is what he wants for us. Romans 6 begins with this clear, clear, clear assertion. Romans 6 says, it is wrong for you to think like this. Do not equate his grace... Do not equate the freeness of the gospel with his apathy towards sin. Don't think that that's what it means. That's what Romans 6, 1, 2, and 3 are teaching us. It says, God forbid in the King James. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Absolutely not is the answer. Let's keep looking back here at Romans 6. He says in verse 2, certainly not in the New King James. God forbid in the King James. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now we're going to get into some of the nuts and bolts. Why is this a biblical truth that you can defend with a biblical logic? How, how, How do you defend this? How do you make the case? You who have believed Christ have joined yourself to Christ in his death. This is how we begin to think about this. When you are baptized, if your baptism had the proper biblical meaning, if if your baptism was you being joined to Christ in his death, if that's what your baptism was to you, this is what we're learning here in, in, in Romans 6. one. When you are baptized, it says you died with him. Don't you realize that when you were baptized, you died with the Lord Jesus Christ? Obviously, this is a spiritual interpretation of what baptism means. When you're baptized, you die. Die to what? Sin. When you were baptized, you realized you died. Your life in the reign of sin ended. You realized that that's what happened, right? This is what Paul is asking you. You understand that's what happened to you, right? You died to sin. You were joined to Christ. He is the one who actually died for you. His death became your death and and your baptism is when you died to sin and raised to new life in Christ. King sin reigned over there in Adam. Sin was reigning. You died to that reign. You left the reign of sin. This is what we're learning here in these two verses. You died to it. Sin's requirement was met. In your baptism. What is sin's requirement? What is sin asking for? Death. The wage. When you died with Christ, a payment is made. What is the payment made? 
death. When you put your faith in Christ, you're putting your faith in the death of Christ. You're putting your faith in your death, dying in Christ. Do you see that? Your death, the death you deserve, is the death dying in Christ. It's the death there. There's the payment in the person of Christ and the death of Christ. Your baptism is you dying with Christ. Sin's requirement is made. Sin's demand is met if you died with Christ. You see that? What is your hope for salvation? What is your hope for an escape from death? Christ's death. What is your hope of righteousness? The righteousness of Christ. If you died with Christ, then you died to sin. That's what he's saying here. Was your baptism death to sin and with Christ? That's an important question for you to be thinking of. Was your belief in Christ your death with Christ and your death to sin? Is that what it was? That would have meant for you to believe in Christ? Did you die to sin? Did you die with Christ? If that's true, if this is so, then then then, then the mixture of gratitude and shame that you have is profound, isn't it? We realize it is my sin that had to be punished in the innocent lamb. My sin was on the lamb. My sin is on the Christ. My sin is the reason Christ dies. There's shame in that. But there's also gratitude, intense gratitude, glorious gratitude that God's lamb, the Messiah, died instead of you. There's an exchange where his death has become my death. His death has become your death when you put your trust in him. How long does the Lord Jesus live? When, when he comes out of the grave, how long does the Lord Jesus live? He lives eternally. This is why the offer of eternal life is a genuine, legitimate offer of life. The Lord Jesus conquers death. He, he raises from the dead and he lives eternally. Your hope for eternal life is grounded perfectly and purely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. You see that? If you have participated in believer's baptism, that's what baptism is. That's why we are Baptists. You have to understand this and you have to believe this. Your baptism is being joined in union with Christ, dying with Christ, raising with Christ. It's plain. You guys remember Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? Remember that verse? I have been crucified with Christ. This is speaking of the exact same thing what we're reading about here. I've been crucified with Christ. Why is that significant? Why must that be true if you are a Christian? Because you must have your sins paid for. You must die with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20 says. And it is a glorious, shameful truth. 
Savior died with your sin for you and I. Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? That's the question being introduced in Romans chapter 6. Shall you continue in sin that grace might abound? No. May it never be. We actually learn to hate sin. We despise sin. We hate the rule of sin. The reign of sin is the most destructive thing on the earth. That is the most chaotic thing on the earth. That is the most sad thing on the earth. Sin's reign, sin's rule, ultimately ends in death. And on its way there, it is a road of misery, brokenness, unmet expectations. Sin is the worst abuse of men in the world. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter makes mention of this very same thing. The offer of salvation is an offer to leave the reign and the tyranny of sin. The offer of salvation, the offer of faith in Christ is to become a person who who knows the grief and the agony of sin. Look at this one verse, 1 Peter 2.24 speaks about the Lord taking our sins. It says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. This verse encompasses the exact same thing we're reading about here in Romans 6.24. In other words, you don't live in sin. You died to sin. The Lord Jesus Christ died to sinner's death so you don't have to. In your union with the Lord Jesus Christ, His death has become your death. And when you are raised in a new life, what is your attitude towards sin? Do sin that grace might abound? No. May it never be. God forbid. We hate sin. We love righteousness. We love the Savior who is the righteous Savior. Which reign, which reign will you love? Do you love the reign of sin? Or do you love the reign of God's grace in Christ? Let's close in prayer and then we'll sing the doxology together. Oh Lord, how we thank you and praise you for the great gospel, the great offer of union with the Lord Jesus. How we thank you, Lord, for his perfect life. How we thank you for giving us his righteousness even now, Lord. How we thank you for the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Oh God, may we may we be tender-hearted and and may we have the desire to steer clear to to avoid sin, to not let it have a, a rule in our life, Lord. God, we love you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing the doxology together. It's the Jude one, so you can look at the book of Jude or probably just sing it from memory.